As we begin today, I just want to um, acknowledge uh, Katie Henry filling in for us the past several weeks. It's so nice when Dr. Clark is away visiting family that we have such a wonderful uh, musicians that can step in and, and I'm so grateful. Every week, we just have so many amazing musicians, and it makes my sermons sound a little bit better, I'm convinced. So, um, so we are in week nine of a ten-week series entitled Letting Go, and it's based on a book by Brene Brown called The Gifts of Imperfection, and I've said to you throughout these past eight weeks that if you enjoy the sermons, I think you'd really enjoy the book. There's lots more there that I just simply can't cover each week, and so I hope many of you have said you've purchased that, and uh, I I highly recommend it to you. Uh, If you haven't been here for all of the services, you'd like to go back, then you can check out our church website, you can watch the videos, you can download the podcast. Uh, You might even want to share those with a friend that you think might be helpful for them to hear some of these messages. Today uh, is letting go of self-doubt. And I know it says letting go of self-doubt and supposed to, but since I was supposed to let go of something, I let go of supposed to, so it's now letting go of (laughs) self-doubt. The goal has been all along that you and I would uh, let go of who we think we're supposed to be, and that we would instead embrace who God has created us to be. I read an article recently that said that most infants function at the level of a genius for the first year of their life. Now, I don't know how they figure this out because I'm no genius, but apparently they have been able to discern that most infants... Uh, function at the level of a genius. And they do it by looking at things like how babies learn that when they cry, people pick them up, so they cry. Babies learn that when somebody stands in front of them and make a goofy face, that they laugh. And when they laugh, that there's these chemicals of which they're unaware, but those chemicals, when you laugh, make you feel good. So babies love to laugh. Babies are able to decipher this, this stuff, this gibberish that they hear other people around them, these utterances that make no sense to them at first, and they quickly began to develop a language of, of expression, and, and so they began to learn to speak. So people believe that These babies are functioning at the level of a genius. And and one of the things that I notice about those kids is that if they could fall ten times, or they could fall a thousand times, but never once does it occur to them in their brain that I can't do this, so I should just stop trying. They just get right back up, and, and they try it again. But as these children age something begins to happen. Their ability to process and absorb this sensory input begins to diminish significantly. And so researchers wanted to know why. Why is it that the older we get, this this sensory input that we're receiving and our ability to translate it and make sense of it begins to decrease And one of the primary reasons why people say that this happens is because of learned behavior of self-doubt and self-judgment. 
And this learned behavior actually comes from people who are well-meaning and well-intentioned. Most of the time it's our parents, but it could be any number of adults. But, but they teach these children to begin to have self-doubts. We do it. So this is how it happens. When you say to a little girl, well, you can't be a firefighter because that's too dangerous. Or only boys do that. Or when you say to a little boy, you can't be an artist because artists will never make a lot of money and you'll never be able to provide for your family. Or if you say to a child, you can't go to Ole Miss because you're not smart enough. (laughs) It just creates this self-doubt in the minds and in the hearts of our kids. It's learned behavior. We mean well when we do it and when we say it, but we're actually teaching these children to to begin to doubt, whereas before they just pick up on everything and are willing to try everything. And the amazing thing about this self-doubt for all of us is that if you think about where you doubt yourself, it probably started a long time ago through the words or the messages that you received from someone in your past. It's almost always associated with the message that you received from the past. Last fall, I went to this family reunion, and somebody had the great idea that we should pull out a bow and arrow and begin to shoot at a target. And um, I think I've told you this before, but, but I was never confused with Grizzly Adams when I was growing up. Uh, I just didn't really care to be outside hunting like my brother and my father did. It made no sense to me why you'd want to go sit out in the freezing cold weather and wait on Bambi to show up. And, and, and I just didn't feel really good about it. And, and my brother and my father didn't do anything to help the way I felt about being able to do that. They would say that when we were walking out to the woods that I stomped too loud on the leaves and I was going to scare away all of the deer. And then once we got to the place where we were going to position ourselves to kill Bambi, they would say to me that I couldn't stay still and, and, and I was running off the deer. And, and I didn't like climbing up into tree stands because I was petrified of heights and I was afraid of the kick of the rifle whenever you would fire it and so my family they just began to tell me maybe you should just stay at home you're just not good at this you just you'll never be good at this and so you just stay at home and so when they were talking at that family reunion about pulling out that bow and arrow and to begin to shoot at the target I remembered all of those messages from my past and how I was told that I couldn't do it in the past and so I didn't want to try it in the present. I had self-doubts, and those self-doubts went all the way back to messages that I was receiving from people in my life. It was learned behavior. But I think I've told you that I spent a lot of money in therapy through the years. I'm trying not to hear that critical inner voice so much in my head. I don't want that voice to be the loudest voice in my head. And so I've been trying really hard over the last four or five years to make sure that I don't allow the voices telling me what I couldn't do in the past inform the way I try to do things in the present. And so even though my inclination was when they kept asking me to come and shoot that bow and arrow was not to do it, to just politely decline, I I decided that I wasn't going to allow all of those voices from the past to impact what I was going to do in the present. And so I shot that bow and arrow. 
And I did pretty good. In fact, I did better than most everybody else at the family reunion. And I was surprised even myself. But what I knew going into that moment was that I had somebody that had invited me to do it. I had somebody that was standing there right beside me who was willing to teach me, who was willing to guide me, who was not going to leave me alone, that was going to help me to do what they had invited me to do. And it ended up working really, really well. In our scripture lesson this morning, we have this conversation that's going on between Moses and God. And you might remember that just before this, the Hebrew people had been in bondage to the Egyptians. They had basically been uh, slaves. They made the bricks for Pharaoh's transportation system. It was a miserable job. They were treated awful. And, And so they began to cry out to God. They wanted to be liberated from bondage. And God heard their prayer and God decided to answer their prayer. And God decided to use Moses as his primary agent in answering this prayer. And so Moses uh, is approached by God. God actually is in a burning bush and says, "Uh, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my children go. And then I want you to lead those people into the promised land. And, and Moses was like, uh, I, I don't want to do it. It's like immediately when God began to ask Moses to do this, that those self-doubts began to surface in Moses' mind. And we don't know everything that happened in Moses' life. We just have a few instances in Scripture up to this point. But I can almost guarantee you that any self-doubt that Moses experienced in this Uh, invitation from God stemmed from messages that he had received or experienced earlier in his life. And so when God asked him to do this, Moses objects five different times. The first time Moses objects, he just says, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. It's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. He said, who am I that I would go to Pharaoh and that I would be the one to lead the Israelites out of bondage and into the promised land? And so God had to reassure him. I've called you. I I will equip you. I will be with you. I will teach you. I will guide you. But it didn't work. Then Moses offered up a second objection. This is in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, uh, well, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? And and so once again, God says, look, I am with you. I, I will be there for you. I will teach you. I will guide you. I will give you the words to speak. Don't worry about it. We've got this. But Moses still had doubts. And so Moses objects for a third time. And that's the first objection that we read about in our scripture lesson this morning. Moses is like, well, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't trust me? And so once again, God has to say, I'm with you. I'm here for you. I'll teach you and I will guide you. And if I'd been God, I would have reminded him of what God had already said in chapter 3, verse 18. The people of Israel will listen to you. They will trust you. But Moses objects for that third time and says, what if they don't believe me or what if they don't trust me? And then it's as if God is beginning to catch on and he says, "Uh, you know, Moses is not going to get my verbal assurances. So I'm going to have to give Moses some signs that will maybe help Moses get over this doubt that he's experiencing. And so God says to Moses, what's that in your hand? Moses says, it's a staff. God says, put the staff down on the ground. He throws it on the ground and it turns into a snake. Now, if you were reading Scripture or listening to the Scripture closely enough, this didn't help lessen Moses' fear. (laughs) In fact, 
uh, the NIV translates it, when Moses saw that snake on the ground, he turned around and ran. And so God has to somehow get Moses back. We're not told how that happens. And somehow Moses is convinced by God to try to pick that snake up by the tail. And when Moses does that, the snake turns back into a staff. And then God gave Moses a second sign. God told Moses to put his hand in his cloak. He pulled it out. He had a skin disease. He was leprosy. He would have been ostracized by the community. He would have been ritually unclean. And yet when he stuck his hand back inside the cloak and pulled it out, the hand was fine. And then it's as if that the Lord has always known that you and I are tempted to doubt Because God says, if they don't believe the first sign, then you've got the second sign. And if they don't believe the second sign, then I want to give you a third sign. I want you to get some Nile River water and pour it on the ground. And when you pour it on the ground, it will turn to blood. Well, despite all of those visible signs, and despite the previous verbal assurances that God had given Moses, Moses still resists, and Moses offers up the fourth objection. I'm a terrible public speaker. And it's at this point that I think God's getting a little ticked at Moses. Because God says, who created you? Who gave you the ability to speak? And if I created you and I gave you the ability to speak, I'm the one that's calling you to go and speak, so what's the problem, Moses? Why? Are you still resisting? And yet, even that doesn't satisfy Moses. And so he goes to the fifth objection and the lamest objection of all. Just go pick somebody else. And it's at this point in the Scripture that we're told that God's anger burned against Moses. Well, what I like about it is you can make God mad, but God can still be reasonable. What I love about this text is that never once did God uh, condemn Moses for the objections that Moses made. All God did was with every objection, God just invalidated the objection. Um, God didn't say, like it or lump it. God, every time Moses raised an objection, God tried to help Moses understand that that objection is without merit. You you don't have to worry about that. I am with you. I will be with you. I will teach you. I will guide you. Uh, Moses uh, is never chastised by God, even though God gets angry. I think it's because God realized on some level that what God was calling Moses to do was difficult. And that there's going to be a part of us when we're invited to do something difficult that is going to create doubts in our minds. And so that's why I believe that God didn't condemn Moses for his constant objections. And Moses ultimately surrendered. And Moses did what God wanted Moses to do. And it wasn't always easy. And it didn't always go the way that Moses or even God had planned. But God was with Moses. God did equip Moses for the task that God had called Moses to do. And God does the same for each of us. 
I can't help but think if what if Moses would allow those self-doubts in his mind to rule the day? What if he had decided not to do that which God invited and called him to do because of those self-doubts? He would have missed, first of all, the opportunity to be used by God in a wonderful and powerful way, in such a way that we're still talking about it today as people of faith. If, if Moses would have allowed those self-doubts to rule, he would have never been able to do this. And if Moses had allowed those self-doubts to rule the day, then, then Moses would have never experienced this special, intimate connection that God promised Moses, I will be with you. I will guide you. I will teach you. You will not be alone. I will be there with you and I will be there for you. Had Moses not done what he did, if he'd allowed his self-doubts to rule the day, he would have missed this intimate connection with God and then he would have missed the intimate connection with the people of Israel had he not said yes to God. I suspect if you're like me that you have a lot of moments in your life where you're surrounded and filled with self-doubt. And what I want to suggest to you is that that's not the way that God created you to be. That's not the way you began your journey here on this earth as an infant. If you failed, you just get right back up and you try to walk again, you try to talk again. That's the way you were created. These self-doubts have crept into our minds It's been learned behavior because of messages that we have received from the past. And those self-doubts keep us from being the people that God creates us to be. Who did God create you to be? God created you with individual talents and gifts and graces and abilities. And God wants you and desires for you to share those gifts and graces and talents and abilities with other people. And when we share those gifts, when we live out those gifts that God has given to us, then we have this special connection with God. It just feels right. We're doing what we were created to do. We're being who we were created to be. We're going where we were created to go. It just feels right. There's this connection with God that's unlike any other connection with God that we might experience. And it also connects us with the larger world, with the other people of God that are all around us. And it gives our lives meaning, and it gives our lives purpose, and it gives our lives direction, and it gives our life power. So what would it mean for each of us to let go of self-doubt? and to live into a life that we were created to live? Maybe that be the question we ponder today.